listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. For the longest time, Wayne Bean just wanted to get ahead. To achieve his career goal of managing a cattle station, having his own land, and the time to pursue his passion for horses. And, spoiler alert, he has, by all definitions, gotten ahead. After two decades of managing stations for Hatesbury Pastoral, these days he spends his time on his own property, breeding and training horses for the sport of camp drafting of which he is a formidable competitor. So, when you see him, it's easy to focus on the flash horse trailer, beautiful horses, and impressive scores in the camp draft arena. What you don't see is the 30 plus years of hard work, patience, and sacrifice Wayne has put in alongside his wife Rachel to get to where he is today. This episode is part one of our chat with Wayne, where he shares stories from the early years of being a stockman with a young family, just trying to get ahead in life. I never got to see my parents a lot, mainly because they were both working. I uh, spent a lot of time with my grandparents. I used to get dropped off there very early in the morning with my sister and brother and our grandma would prepare us for school, breakfast and all that. And the same in the evening, um, we'd get picked up late in the evening because mum and dad used to work big hours. Dad especially, uh, a lot of overtime, trying to get ahead, paying off a house, get a bit of a start in life. What was it that your parents were doing that kept them away and got them working such big hours? They both worked at Dinmore Meatwork. Mum worked there in the end, I think, for 39 years, um, doing various jobs as a packer, a bit of slicing, and my dad was a maintenance man there, like a fitter. He uh, tragically was killed there in 1975, uh, 1st of October, 75, when I was nine. And then my mum continued to work there for some time after that, and then she eventually left. Mm. So your parents worked in a meat processing plant, which is, I guess, one end of the supply chain, and you went on to work in the other end of that same supply chain. Was I guess, was that your introduction to cattle and, and wanting to work on the land, seeing what your parents did at that end? No, not really. Um, I've always had a, a, a bit of a wolf inside me for adventure. You know, and uh, I always look to the north of Australia when things come on television, you know, whether it was uh, the Leyland Brothers or or Malcolm Douglas or anything with adventure, even rodeo. Uh, I've always had that bug in me, you know, and it was always going to come out. But the cattle industry and the horse industry really only got introduced to me. The fact that my parents worked at the abattoirs was a coincidence, but. After my father died, my 
mother started dating, you know, friends, and they always seemed to be cowboys for some reason. Yeah, and, and that's where I first got introduced into horses, probably when I was about 11 year old, and then got more involved with working cattle, and then we moved from town out onto a, an old dairy farm out of Ipswich, a bit further west, a little town called Rosewood. So yeah, we moved up to Rosewood and we had access to horses and cattle, you know, ran our own cattle and uh, grew a bit of hay and we tried to make fun of things uh, with what we had, uh, a little bit different back then. And I can remember, you know, Friday nights after school, my brother and I, or my mate and I, or three of us, we'd uh, we'd grab a horse after dark, usually fairly late at night. While mum was away, she used to like ballroom dancing and old-time dancing, and we'd sneak off on the horses and take a spare one with a couple of chaff bags, and we'd go up onto the mountain and steal all these mangoes. Um, and then we'd bring them all the way home, get back about one o'clock in the morning, and then on the weekend, we'd go about boxing them up and selling them wherever we could for pocket money. Yeah, that was probably one of the naughty things we did back then. It's very entrepreneurial. Yeah, I don't know why, you know. Um, we never really got involved in sport or too much in pony club or things like that where most of other kids did. Yeah, we're always trying to get an extra dollar. We'd go picking melons or pumpkins work all day on the weekends because we had a goal to to buy something personal we knew our mother wouldn't buy it for us so we just uh, went out there and worked our ass off and till we had enough money to buy it what sort of things did you want to buy uh just personal things like um you might want to buy a decent pair of riding boots or a saddle or you know, upgrade a horse or something, you know, you're at an age, you're still in school and if you wanted those things, you just had to go and work for them, you know, like we didn't get a lot of handouts as a kid, you know, we got a hand up when we needed it or some help if um, things went wrong, but you pretty much had to go out there and work for it yourself. Do you think you got that from your parents, from watching them work such long hours to achieve their goals? Yeah, I think it works two ways. You know, some people think, well, you see your parents work that hard. I don't want to be like that. You know, or a lot of kids will sit back and almost wait for their parents, you know, to die so they inherit it. But I've seen it the other way. Um, anything that I was going to achieve in life, I got more enjoyment out of the journey getting there. Too often, once I got what I wanted and worked hard for, I thought, well, this is not as good as what I thought it was. <laughs> but that's the way life is. And what was your mum's thoughts when you said you wanted to go up north? I know back in those days it was quite common to leave, you know, around 15, 16 and go into the workforce. Is that something she was supportive of? No. Yeah, like most mothers, they, they want to keep you around them. And I got out of school when I was 15, had very good passes, and I pretty much was told at 15 you've got to get a trade first before you go anywhere. So at the time, I reluctantly got into a good trade, a boiler-making trade, good firm, paid good money. So, you know, I got to save up for a car. I used to get a lift to work and basically finished that trade just as mother wanted. And then, yeah, the, the very day I come out of my trade, I was on my way to the Northern Territory to start a job. 
So you were doing that trade purely to please your mother, to kind of tick that box, and then you you still had this goal of heading up north the whole time. There wasn't at any point you thought, oh, this is, you know, I've got this trade now, I'm making good money, I might stick, you know, stick around and keep doing this. Like, it was purely a means to an end. You know, I did the trade basically because, you know, in respect of my father, and my mother wanted me to, and... If I was going to do a trade, that's the one that I probably would have done, being a boilermaker. And, um, um, but at the same time, I never really liked it. I enjoyed, you know, building things and making things, and that was quite satisfactory. But I just didn't enjoy the environment, you know, working in a workshop all day and getting in tight areas and, you know, having to fix things up in dirty conditions in a coal mine, all that sort of thing. So I was pretty eager to get out, and it made me work harder too. I mean, back then we had incentives if you went to trade school and you got credits, you got, you know, two weeks off your time and all that sort of thing. And in the end, I ended up with credits and some distinctions, which was pretty high up in the 90s, and, yeah, got three months off my time. So I finished three months early and, yeah, basically took off from there. Is that the same trade that your father held, Boilermaker? No, he was more of a, a fitter, more on the tools, um, even though he did a lot of welding back then. Back then, they were, they were a lot more multi-skilled. When I moved into a trade, they had a term called demarcation, where you weren't allowed to do anything that wasn't directly appointed to your job. You know, for instance, you couldn't go pulling a water pipe or electrical pipe off something to weld it up. You'd have to get a plumber in or an electrician in, but... Back in my father's day, they had to do everything. It kind of sounds like being on a station. I don't think demarcation would last about five seconds anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so true. But I guess in such a large and controlled environment, you know, occupational health and safety, uh, looking over your shoulder all the time, we're out in the station, you've just got a little bit more freedom. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it's a fair point, though. I guess when you think about it, it does make sense. So you finished your trade. And I was, let's say, not a minute too soon, but three months early and straight up north. Where did you go? Um, I scored a job uh, with Clinter Holdings. They were a big pastoral or a subsidiary of Mount Isa Mines. And, uh, you know, they were the body that did the pastoral side of the land Mount Isa Mines owned. So, and that happened to be at MacArthur River. And at MacArthur River, they ran Tarwalla and Bing Bong Station. So, virtually from Heartbreak Hotel right up to the Borrelula coastline. And, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting, exciting place to work for two years. Now, we've had Tony Tapcoots on the show recently, and they were her and her husband, Sean, and managers when you went up there. I, I asked this to Tony, I've just got to ask you as well, how good of a name is Bing Bong Station? How good of a name. <laughs> yeah. Did you think it was funny at the time or was it just a name to you? Well, it was just a name, you know, and I never ever got to ask how they come up with that name. I'm, I'm sure there's a story to it. I mean, I was just at a stage in my life where I, was, I wasn't really caring about history or anything like that. I, I do now. Um, I always ask, but I never really found out why they called it Bing Bong Station, <laughs> but it's a hell of a name. I just can't say it or hear it without wanting to giggle. It just sounds brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, there are some colourful names with stations, but yeah, I never found the meaning of that one. And so what was it like? You know, what was your first impression getting up there? 
just how nice the people were, especially the people above you, you know, like the head stockmen, the managers, Sean and Tony Coots. You know, I thought it was a big, rough, tough outback, and it was at a lot of other places, don't get me wrong. But uh, no, they're just such lovely people to work with, and even the Aboriginal community there, everyone got along so well. It was just a, yeah, it actually gave me the wrong impression, you know, I was starting to expect that everywhere, and years later I found out that I was never going to work for people like that again, and and such a well-run property. Yeah, so, but it was a great, great place to start. It, it uh, gave me inspiration um, to run a place like that uh, when I become a manager, so. So what was a cattle station in the Territory like in the mid-80s? Well, I showed up in 1986 at MacArthur River and um, I'm not quite sure what other places, you know, were like, but at that stage at MacArthur River there were, and I found out later it was no different. There was a lot of a lot of Aboriginal stockmen. They made up most of the stock camp. Um, there was an odd, you know, jackaroo starting like myself and a couple of old white fellas usually. It was just, um, it was all about, you know, BTEC, the brucellosis and TB eradication campaign. Everything was targeted just for that, getting rid of that those two diseases. So, yeah, there was a lot of, you know, animals getting destroyed doing post-mortems on them, you know, destroying them in paddocks to clean clean the paddocks out. And there was very, very little animal husbandry. You know, I come from an area where you preg test every cow and everything's got to be accounted for. And But the theme was, you know, we've got to get rid of this disease. And um, I never knew anything about that coming from where I come from. It really opened my eyes up. So you thought you're coming up there to, I guess, do what you did back home, but on a much larger scale. Meanwhile, you arrive there in the midst of this campaign, which really is quite an intense work program, with the result being a lot of animals being destroyed. It's probably not what you were expecting. No, not at all. And um, just the sheer size of the paddock, the amount of uh, clean-skinned cattle, feral animals such as donkeys, brumbies, Dingoes, uh, yeah, it was just overrun with ferals. And that was likewise pretty much right across the Territory, you know. Um, that really opened my eyes up as well. Back then in the mid-80s, uh, it's not like today, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure, you know, not a lot of sets of yards. The paddocks were huge, not a lot of watering points like we've got today. And it was pretty much all helicopter you know, the cattle didn't have a great handle on them. There was a lot of uh, feral cattle in amongst them, which made them difficult to handle. So the helicopters did most of the work. We were always out there on horses. We used the horses to, to tail the wieners and tail all the breeders in between the, the TB test and the TB read, which was usually 72 hours. So we'd let them out the yard and tail them on horses, and that helped a lot, get them quieter. And the next year, you know, they got better and better. But, uh, yeah, there's still a lot of, lot of feral animals. You'd have been buggered without helicopters, you know, and, and sometimes there'd be three, four, five helicopters and Bell 47s, big helicopters. You made a lot of noise, a lot of shift about them as far as cattle go and very, very different to today, that's for sure. 
how would you know back then, I guess, if the whole point is to get cattle in to test them and try and eradicate this disease, when you've got such rough country and a lack of infrastructure, how would you know if you were getting all the cattle in there? Or is that just why the TB program kind of went over a few decades? Like, how do you know you haven't missed it? I mean, you could muster an area or a, or a paddock, but you might have, even if you just leave two behind, if one of those two is TB, then it's kind of a, a moot point. Yeah, absolutely, and and that used to happen all the time. So while you were um, testing uh, the cattle out of that paddock, management had an opportunity to go back and ship those cattle out of those paddock. But if you were going to put those same cattle back in that paddock, it had to be flown by a stock inspector first, and that's when they usually come in with a gunship, you know, a helicopter with a, a stocky in it with an SLR 308 rifle, and uh, they'd shoot those cattle. They'd class them as unmusterable, and then compensation would be paid to the owners, managers of that place. So every every paddock had to be clean, you know, to uh, before you put cattle back into it. Wow. So it was really in your best interest to try and get a clean muster, but also if you're a cow, it's also in their best interest to come in because hopefully you test negative you get to keep your life for I guess a little while longer but escaping a muster didn't mean you were escaping for a long time no that's right but you know but then there was people that thought well the cattle that are left there we're not going to get that sort of money for them out of meat work so Mm -hmm. the subsidy is is uh is a better deal so for some people they didn't try too hard to clean their paddocks out so there's a a little bit of uh, naughty stuff happening, as there is in those type of things. But, yeah, I mean, I think it was a great campaign. Looking back now, it, it cleaned up a herd. I, I don't know where our herd would be today in the north uh, without the BTEC campaign. You know, a lot of people done very well out of it. And when it was finished, a lot of people went by the buy. You know, they uh, financially couldn't survive without it, with the subsidisation, so... Um, but it was a great program looking back now. At the time, I didn't think it was, but it was a great thing for the industry. Was it exhausting? I mean, did you wear the seat out of your jeans, having to do that much riding and working all the time? Well, it was. it just took a lot of time, basically, because, you know, you could run your cat, you could muster your cattle in, in one day, might be two or 3,000, and the next day you could have them all drafted and out in the yard. But out of the yards, and uh, but with this campaign, we had to hang on to them for 72 hours, so either had to feed them hay in the yard, which no one really did, because you, you got paid a subsidy for hay, but no one really bought the hay, so they kept the money and, and um, tailed the cattle out. So yeah, it was taking three to four times longer to process one mob out of one pack than it normally would, so it was very, very drawn out. What was the social side of life like for you? I mean, you're a, you're a young fella. You've come up for work, but also for an adventure. Um, but again, very intense work program. Did you get any time to blow off steam or stretch your legs? Yeah, I guess um, we, the, you know, at MacArthur River back then, most places went to two, three, if you're lucky, rodeos, camp drafts, one being the Catherine Show, which seemed to be a, a big magnet for all the workers on the station. Everyone certainly went there. 
no matter how far away you work from Catherine, you went to the Catherine show. That was, uh, you know, that was gospel. Um, and from MacArthur River, I guess we did a couple of local ones, uh, Borrelula, of course, just up the road, sometimes Brunette Downs and sometimes Daly Waters, but um, usually two or three a year is where we got to, um, you know, we'd get a week off, like we'd proper um, do all the things we talked about, whether it was drinking and fighting and chasing the women. There wasn't too many of them back then. And as well, if we had a day off, we had Heartbreak Hotel down the road, about 19 kilometres. And um, I remember getting banned from there once. But what yeah. did you do? Don't gloss over that part, <laughs> Wayne. Come on. Well, I won't mention any names. You know, there's, uh, there is some things in your life you'd rather not talk about, but the fact that you asked, I will tell you. <laughs> Uh, we are just down there, a day off one night, and a, f- a very good friend from a neighbouring station. Um, I've, I've, he, he was the, the cause of it, but uh, anyhow, a truck come in to unload all the grog into the pub, usually early hours of the morning, and it was about two or three in the morning, I was choked down in my own vehicle in a Toyota, and no one locked cars back then, you know, and uh, so he's loaded all this uh, grog off the freight truck into my vehicle. As a bit of a setup, so, and then he's proceeded to cover me in bougainvillea flowers, which were growing on the veranda. So he picked all the flowers off the bougainvillea trees and put them all over me. I looked like someone out of Hawaii, and then I had all this, all this alcohol in the back. And anyhow, the manager at the time, she came out and caught me about four or five in the morning, and uh, accused me of stealing all the alcohol which I didn't know about, and it was just a prank by one of my mates, but uh, she wouldn't believe it, so I got banned there for about a month. <laughs> oh, for a time where smartphones weren't around, I would love to see a picture of that. Yeah. Maybe we could recreate that, Wayne. We'll get you in the back of you, cover you in Bougainvilliers. There's plenty around town. Yeah, Have all you- I can say is there's a lot of people in jail that shouldn't be in there. <laughs> <laughs> What was it like at knockoff time? What did you guys do for fun? Well, you never knew when knockoff time was. Basically, you're that darn tired, you know, by the time you, you'd packed up for the day and had a shower and, you know, if you're lucky, you got a bit of washing done, you were that tired, you just went to bed, you know. You know, sometimes you wouldn't get in till late thirty nine o'clock at night. And... You know, most of the stations, including that one, you know, had drinking policies. So it's not like today where no matter what time you knock off, you crack a stubby or whatever. So, yeah, but we were that, that tired. We we just went to bed. So what was the drinking policy that you couldn't drink after a certain time? Well, you couldn't drink out in the stock camp. If you're at the station, camped at the station, you're allowed four a night, six on Saturday night. And that was pretty common throughout all the places in the Territory then. It was never really policed on some places. Um, certainly MacArthur Evan never really had a reason to police it, you know. Um, everyone was pretty decent there. But, oh, look, you know, we're on a, a very low wage and oh, you're trying to get ahead in life so you weren't going to drink all your earnings away and you never felt like it anyway. You are so tired, you know. We... We had no telephones. There was a a radio, a HF radio, but that was only for emergency calls. And 
yeah, unless, you know, you had bereavement in your family or something, you weren't really allowed to use it. So all we relied on back then, which is totally forgotten now, was letter writing. And it's just incredible how it's gone out the back door. No one writes letters anymore. So we'd have a mail plane once a week. And yeah, it was something that uh, you always look forward to, you know, hearing from your parents or your brother and sister or your mate. You know, if you, if you never got a letter, you just felt so bad because everyone around you in the stock camp was opening up letters and you didn't have a letter. That makes me so sad, especially because if it only comes once a week, that's a long, like to wait a week is a, is a fair long, fairly long wait. But then if you don't get one in that week, then you've got to wait another week to see if you've got one. So that's a long time to... That's right. You can be reading those old letters over and over again. Yeah. You know, but I'd always always get a letter from my wife, now Rachel. You know, we were boyfriend-girlfriend back then because we virtually met in school when she was 13, I was 14. And then I didn't get a letter from anyone for one week and you're sitting around watching everyone open their letters. And and then the following week I got a letter from Rachel and it was a, a Dear John letter, which um, was a bit sad at the time, so... But, you know, that's the way it was, so you move on. Well, at least we all know there was a happy ending because you've said she's your wife and still wife, so absolutely, just a little bump in the road. So it was. Yeah, it's like anything when you're so far away, um, you know, it's very hard to maintain a relationship like that, so it was probably for the better. Yeah, it was going to be hard, though, that you – because you can only communicate by letter writing. It's not like you can kind of pick up the phone and say, hey, can we talk about this or let's meet up and like you can't. You've got to send a letter and have, gosh, so much patience to wait for them to receive it and then then for them, if, if they send one back, then wait for it. And yeah, it's a very absolutely. drawn out process. It is. But it's all we knew. We didn't know any better. Like I said, you know, it's just unreal today. You've got these mobile phones that can just do everything. You know, yeah, and no one writes letters anymore. It's so sad. How's your handwriting, Wayne? It's actually pretty neat. Really? Yeah, I always took a lot of pride in in you know running, writing, or printing. I used to do a lot of uh, very good at technical drawing. In technical drawing, you got to print fairly neat. Everything's got to be the same size, and you know to get into a trade um, back then, you had to have good technical drawing skills, which I had. I'm going to have to get a sample of this and we'll put it on our Instagram <laughs> or Facebook so we can prove it to people. And I don't know, I might I might dictate what you need to write down. Probably something along the lines of, I, Wayne Bean, promise to give you, Def Coombs, any horse that you choose from my paddock. <laughs> I think that would go really well. <laughs> I don't know how neat the writing will be for that one. <laughs> yeah. I know, does it change when you're under coercion? <laughs> when there's when there's like a gun or a, or a I don't know, something, a crowbar yeah. next to you? Yeah. Oh, gosh. So a couple of years at MacArthur River and then something happened, which for back then, you know, was not common. You got promoted to head stockman. Yeah. So basically I was always going to do two years at MacArthur River and then I picked up a transfer to one of their Queensland Bullock properties, a place called Eastern Creek down near Collinsville, yeah, and then I wasn't long there, and then the um, existing head stockman there got promoted and transferred, so I sort of stepped into the job uh, that I wasn't ready for. I was the youngest person in the camp, running the camp. You know, those guys in there in their mid-30s and nearly 40, and 
it's very difficult because uh, I grew up very respectful of elders. Um, you know, regardless whether they knew what they were talking about or doing or whatever, if they were older than me, I just basically respected them. And so it's very hard to pass orders on to people that are 10, 15 years older than you. But anyhow, it was all part of the journey. I had to do it. So it all worked out fairly well. You said you weren't ready for it. Did you know that at the time or were you kind of like young and thinking, yeah, I can do this, like I've got what it takes? Or were you like, ah, oh, this is not, not. Yeah, well, it was just unheard of. I mean, I always pretty much thought I had to wait for someone to die. There wasn't a head stock on up here under 40, you know, at least 35 and, you know, to be, you know, that age, age of 22 years old, um, it's just unheard of. It's quite common today. I mean, we've got people 18, 19 running stock camps, but we've got a lot more technology and machinery too. Back then, you needed a lot more um, hands-on skills, you know, with horses and cattle and and everything in general, really, maintenance. Um, yeah, you couldn't really compensate yeah, as you can today. And uh, you just tend to not have that experience and skills at 22 years of age. So I, I thought I wasn't qualified for it more than anything. I certainly didn't have the confidence, but I was thrown in the deep end and I had to swim. I mean, it's what I wanted to do, so it was a very early start. You said it all worked out in the end. How did you get from where you started to, you know, being in that role and it working out? What kind of things did you have to do? Was it, I know you just said you didn't have the confidence and that you didn't think you were qualified enough. Was it more of a mindset thing or...? Well, I've always been a, a realist. You know, I've never been optimistic about things or pessimistic about things. I always just take things that I can, you know, touch, see, smell, you know, type of person. And I was just probably being honest with myself, you know, without being pessimistic. And that was the reality of it. I thought to myself, well, here's a chance. You know, it's what I want to do. I want to become a manager one day. So if I don't start now when it's offered it to me, it mightn't come up for another hundred years. And that's the way it seemed like, you know, back then you, you put an ad in the paper read stock when you get 40 or 50 applicants where you're flat out getting two now. Yeah. So it was just different. How do you go about navigating that, you know, giving orders to people who were older than you? and perhaps more, would they have been more experienced than you as well, in a sense? No, absolutely. Um, a lot more experienced, you know. It uh, it was just, I guess it was the way you, you said it to them. I, I didn't have any people skills, but, um, you know, I can pick up on body language pretty good, and I would know if I'd said something the wrong way. I could just see by the way they look at me. And I guess you learn from that, you know. I mean, all you want is is, is peace and harm, harmony and get the job done. I mean, you know, the last thing you want is, is, is people reacting to something that you didn't take the time about thinking about how you were going to say it, you know. So I was very thoughtful about what I said and, more importantly, how I said it. I used to say to them, I said, well, we've got to get this done today, guys. How do you reckon we should go about it? You know, I'd say things like, I haven't been in this paddock before and you fellas got any suggestions? You know, it always make them feel as though that they had some sense of responsibility in running the place, not just me. And I think that helped a lot rather than just go bold out there and do it my way. 
I'd always try and draw their thoughts. You know, if I thought they were being silly with with their comments or something like that, well, I just wouldn't do it. But I always trust my own judgment. You know, most of the time, the guys, because they had local knowledge, they'd always come up with a, an idea that I never had and never thought of, and it was usually right. So just by engaging them more in the work, I think. Yeah, that seems like a really good strategy. You're not just, and kind of on a couple of different angles, you're you're getting that knowledge from them and input, but you're also making them feel involved. And I guess it sounds like they're kind of working alongside you rather than just under you. And I think that can really change as an employee, the way you look at your boss and I think the way you feel about work, that there's a huge difference there if you're just working purely under someone as like Grant or if they make you feel like you're kind of alongside them. Like there's still a difference there. They're still the boss. But just for morale and, and confidence and, yeah, the ability to use your initiative and have some ownership in your work yeah. makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that worked with 90% of the people and then, you know, 10% of the time that didn't work. And you give someone, you know, the opportunity to do it their way and then the next minute they, they're, they're taking over, you know, and start ordering the other guys around and straight away think that you've just given them responsibility to be a leading hand or something when you're not about. So, But they, they are only the 10% of people, so I tend to worry about the 90%. Mm. Mm. And it was around this time that you guys welcomed your first son, Brody, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It was 1988 and uh, there was no um, there was no facility for a married position, you know, back at where I was at Eastern Creek. So I left Eastern Creek and went back home and we got married. And uh, so we stayed at my mother's place. We actually, I had a block of land there that was subdivided off my mother's place that I, that we together built a house on. And, um, and yeah, it's just trying to move out of the town, but there was, you know, no work on stations available. It's not like today where you can uh, get on all these different websites, you know, it was still writing letters type thing back then. There was landlines, but there was no mobile phones, no social media. So, um, we kept trying for different jobs, but like I said, you know, there wasn't a, a hell of a lot of work back then. And there was a big list when there was a job. You had to be well known and experienced to get it, and then yeah, just we got a letter one day in the in the mail, um, you know, to go and start at uh, Carrawilla Station out in the Channel Country. Um, some people I knew of from the territory uh, knew that we were looking for work, heard on the grapevine, and so we got to start out there, which was um, which was great. Going out to Channel Country is sort of like going out to a different world when you've come from. Golf country in the territory. What was that experience like? It was uh, fantastic. Um, totally different, like you say. You know the the cattlemanship and the horsemanship there was uh, just way above the Northern Territory. Not taking anything away from the territory at that time, but you know because they had a huge issue with BTEC, and you know the Channel Country had always been monitored negative for tuberculosis and brucellosis. So you know. At that time, they were streets ahead of the Territory as far as, you know, animal productivity and and husbandry things and, and horsemanship, all those sorts of things, maintenance. Um, it was very typical of the 
Channel Country too, you know, they seemed to have their own culture there and the way they did things. We were still Bronco branding there at that time, which was probably the only thing that was behind what they were doing in the Territory. But yeah, everything was very thorough and very proper, very regimental. And uh, I probably learnt most of my skills with, with uh, cattle, certainly was in the Channel Country, you know. So what was it that they were doing differently? They were just more in touch with mustering cattle and reading cattle. It's different type of country. You're just very efficient but and, and also very effective what they did. Where I found what we were doing in the Territory, you know, was um, not very effective and certainly not very efficient. Mustering in the Channel Country, I think we went there, it might have been late 88 or early 89, I can't remember, but uh, back in that era, uh, you know, you'd run the horse plant in, shoe them all up over a couple of days and then you get all your, your camp gear ready and, you know, there'd be a Toyota with a, um, you know, the little kitchenette thing on the back and your clothes bags and a few camp stretches and a, a motorbike trailer with a bit more gear on it, a few more swags and whatever, and, and that was it. You know, you'd leave the station, you might have 30 or 40 horses, uh, two motorbike and, yeah, seven or eight people. And uh, as you left the station, you were mustering, you know, there was no fences, there was a bullock paddock and a horse paddock and that was it, and a set of trucking yards right at the house, so... You'd take off, uh, you know, mustering into the watering point so the bikes would go out a long way, you know, 10, 15k in scout. And one bloke would bring the horses along and the rest of them would uh, put the cattle together as the bikes brought them in, coaches. And that'd go on all day. And and then you'd lock all that mob in the in the Bronco yard overnight um, if it's a big mob and you spend all day mustering and then first thing in the morning they'd be out take them down to the water hole, give them a drink, and then you'd park them up in the flat and start cutting out all the cold cows and calves. No weaning in the channel country, ever. Uh, so you just cut out all the coals, uh, any of the bullocks, any of that was suitable for meatworks, all the store sales in Adelaide with the cold cows and calves. And then you'd hold them in one mob, one bloke would hold the whole lot, and then the rest of the cows were put in the Bronco yard and... All the cars were branded with the old Bronco horses and then we used to hold them up on the water hole, you know, sometimes till nine o'clock at night, mothering them up and then the cold cattle would get put in the Bronco yard so they didn't escape and then we'd hobble the horses out and you'd get to bed at nine thirty, ten o'clock and do it all again the next day. So let me understand it. Is that you would have, you'd go mustering, uh, you'd get a few cattle and then the horses would walk them along and the bikes would feed cattle in. You'd process the cattle, so sort them into their different groups. And the ones that you wanted to sell, you'd hold on to them. Anything that you didn't want to sell, they could go back out. Happy days. And then the next day, as you'd go mustering, you'd have those sale cattle. You'd still have to be, whereas now we'd put them on a truck and send them to a yard. You'd be walking them along. And would you be mustering cattle, the new mob, into them? No. No, they'd be kept separate. So the culls would come along with the horse plant usually one or two blokes, and they'd be a long way away. They'd be way behind that day's muster. So, you know, by the time they got to the next watering hole or the next campsite, the boys had mustered that new area and they got a separate mob of cattle. And then we'd, we'd park those cattle up on the flat 
a playpen or somewhere. There's no fences, no holding paddocks, nothing. And uh, we'd cut the coals out of that, more sale cattle, into the existing coal mob. So they were never boxed up. They never used as coaches. They were kept separate the whole time. So you've got two mobs of cattle going All along. All the time. Wow. All the time. That's pretty impressive. And the impressive thing is, you know, one person on a horse could could what all the planned horses and four or five hundred head out on the flat while the rest of the guys were branding in the yards and taking those cattle away, putting them on water. Sounds like a job I would have liked. <laughs> yeah, it's just a lot of, lot of horsework, a lot of contact, you know, close contact with cattle and, uh, yeah, it was great. Well, I wonder when you say, you know, the one thing that Channel Country was still a bit behind on was the use of Bronco branding. I guess from an efficiency point of view, like maybe you're not getting the numbers that you can do if you run them through a set of yards, but when you're in there riding in amongst your cattle, like the other things you're seeing, like if there's Absolutely. maybe is that why they were still doing it? Like you could see what, you know, what calves were or wieners were from what cows and what condition they're in. And just, I don't know, you just very, it's like a very intimate moment, like riding throughout your cattle in that very close contact and confined space. Yes, it was. Um, it, it made you very observant. In all fairness, the numbers on those properties down there in the Channel Country was mm. nothing like the northern places where, you know, they probably did require, you know, uh, a bit more mechanisation and infrastructure, especially to get through the BTEC campaign, uh, where down there um, they didn't need that and uh, very cheap, efficient places to run. You know, the cattle become so quiet. You know, there was no clean skins running around, even though we were mustering like that. Um, any of the clean skins, you know, you might miss a few that are two or three-year-old were fairly quiet, you know, because all the cattle around them were quiet and been handled, you know, quite well. And did you have anything in the sky to help you down in Saddle Country? The second year we did, we had a aeroplane. Uh, the owners had bought a, a 182 aeroplane and um, they started using that for spotting. But we didn't even have radios, you know, we couldn't talk to the plane. It was all... Um, Oh, yeah, that must be the tail there. You see the plane diving down, bombing. So you'd gallop over there on a horse or a bike and, yeah, you'd run into a few and he'd tip the wing and that'd mean, yeah, you got him, good boy. And otherwise you'd come around again and bomb him until you got there. So it was all just reading the body language of the pilot and the plane. God, that's got to take some skill. That's like a, um, what's that game, charades? Like that's like a very hard version of charades. Well, sometimes... You know, when you couldn't get the communication, you'd come down really low and really <laughs> slow and there'd be a crunched up bit of paper get thrown out oh, the window really? and you'd watch it like hell because it fell in the long grass, you couldn't find it and you'd <laughs> just study it and you'd go over there and read it and it's usually abusive words. <laughs> you dumb effing so-and-so, can't you? But that wasn't that often. Actually, we have had someone on the show who mustered in a plane in the Kimberleys and he, I think... Male, I think he admitted on the show to um, like throwing tools out of the plane, people. <laughs> <laughs> I had a rotten pawpaw thrown at me once. <laughs> Lucky it missed. Like Wayne, how did how did you get this big concussion? Like, was it a was it a rogue scrub ball? Did your horse fall down a ravine or something like that? You know what happened? Oh, just a rotten pawpaw <laughs> coming from the thousand feet. You said you learned a lot in Channel Country, is that somewhere you wanted to stay then? I know we're back up obviously in the Territory now, but if things, if you were learning so much and I'm guessing, like you said, they weren't a part of BTEC, so it wasn't the same kind of work schedule, was it a better quality of life? 
It was. Uh, the Channel Country was a better quality of life, and um, and I sometimes don't know why, but I, I, I often say to my wife, you know, some of the most, um, I, I guess, uh, times that we've had in the Channel Country have been the most satisfying, you know, as a family and a workplace, and I, I just don't know why, but uh, I just have great memories of the Channel Country, and you know, knowing what I know now, I, I don't want to go back there. I'm, I'm past that, but I really, really enjoyed my time there. You know, it was just a great part of our life. Brady was very young. Daniel hadn't even been born then, but, you know, Rachel learnt to cook there, and I learnt a lot about cattle there, you know. Very intimate stuff with cattle, you know, like, um, yeah, teachers to be observant and understand the way they think so yeah it was a great time I had a lot of great moments in the channel country so why'd you leave well um in pursuit of my career you know I've always been a person with goals uh, some personal some career goals you know and part of getting married and having a family was a goal um it happened a bit earlier than I expected but yeah I always wanted to be a you know a manager of a, a big company place it was another thing that was always inside me along with you know being adventurous and all the rest of it so um yeah we weren't really going anywhere there it was a family-owned place it's not like you grow into management or whatever so um I let that sort of be known and I got a letter from uh Sean Coote who was the manager at uh MacArthur River where I first started saying that I've got a friend over at Monogini Station, a manager looking for a head stockman and he put me onto him so I wrote to him and he said when can you start and you know this letters went back and forth for four months. There's no telephone calls. Once again we only had um, you know the HF radio and that was just for urgent things. And we eventually got a start, yeah. I, I remember I took the job on, it might have been in January and I didn't start till halfway through April because we were flooded in for three months and had to go right down through Birdsville to get out of the place where we were at Currawilla. Yeah, I remember getting up there and uh, I think we put our last $10 into the car for fuel at Elliot and then as soon as we got to... So I remember asking the, the manager's wife for a subby, you know, because we had no money and we had a house payment. We were, you know, we were renting the house out that we'd built and, yeah, to keep the show on the road, so. Well, this seems a pretty good place to pull up for now that you've kind of done this loop from Territory, Queensland, then down to Channel Country, which is obviously still in Queensland, and you're about to go back up to the Territory. So I'll, I'll give you a break now, but. For this part of your life and this chapter, what would you say when you reflect on it is, I guess, the lesson that you learn? It's all a bit of a roller coaster, really, eh? I guess there's different stages of your life that uh, you go through and reflect back. I had a goal in mind and that, you know, I wanted to manage a big place. So, yeah, never took another job to take a step back. Uh, I was very cautious about the jobs I took that it always had to be a step up and a step forward. And once that happened, I never sort of reflected back or looked back, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I didn't go digging up the past and thinking that was great or that wasn't, but to always look forward. 
just uh, just had a goal. I wanted to manage a, a place for a big company, and um, that was just part of the journey. <laughs>